We continue uh, this morning in our sermon series in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 12, we heard the story of Abram and Sarai in Egypt. And we read uh, that through that fiasco, Pharaoh sends them away with an abundance of possessions. And we fast forward to our text for today, Genesis chapter 16, and a servant woman by the name of Hagar, who was an Egyptian, uh, enters the picture. Many have speculated, and I think accurately, that, that Hagar is part of the entourage that's sent with Abram and Sarai when they leave Egypt. There's no way to know for sure, but it, it makes sense because Abram and his family came from quite a ways north, and so it's unlikely that, that Hagar would have joined the group previous to their journey to the south. There is, of course, a great irony just out of the gate in our text for today. Sarai, uh, Abram's wife, has an Egyptian servant. But one day, Sarai's descendants would become servants or slaves in Egypt. Today, we're going to witness what happens when human beings don't trust the Lord to follow through on what he's promised. We're going to see what happens when we lean on our own understanding, when we take matters into our own hands. And so I would invite you to stand as I read our sermon text for today from Genesis chapter 16. This is God's word to us. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And she said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward his brothers. She gave this name to the, to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who, seems, who sees me. 
That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name, uh, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Let's pray. God, we believe that your word is true even when it's wild, even when it shows the worst within us. May you speak as your word is proclaimed today. Lead us to repentance and faith. We believe in, or we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we take a few minutes to consider these interesting uh, words from Genesis. I want to share a handful of observations from our text with you. The first one is this. We mistrust God and try to accomplish his will in our own way. Look at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now what could possibly go wrong with this idea? Abram agreed. Of course, Abram agreed. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Verse 3, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. We have had several reiterations of the promise that God made to Abram and Sarai in the past handful of chapters in Genesis. God's promise was clear. But what I think all of us have discovered at one time or another is that it's one thing to say that you trust God and what he has said. When all is well, when things are going great. But it's, it's, it's an entirely different thing to actually trust God each moment, each step, with each decision, when it seems like God is silent. When it appears to us like God has forgotten. When we've been waiting for a long time, when the answers seem hard to come by. And so there's a great temptation as human beings to take matters into our own hands. We've all done this in various ways. We mistrust God and try to accomplish His will in our own way. I'm not sure any observation of this text is more obvious than this one. But sometimes we just need to hear and think about the obvious. Sometimes we need to be confronted with the obvious. Following the life of Abraham, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a bit like being on a roller coaster. You think things have leveled out and, and, and are going to be more stable, and all of a sudden there's a, there's a sharp right-hand turn or a, or a free fall. And that's so clear in our text today. Think back to last week. Abram just had this incredible moment with the Lord, this reminder from God in chapter 15 of God's one-way love, God's unilateral promise and covenant to him and with him, and when God declared that Abraham 
or Abram at this point, was justified by faith. Made right with God. His relationship with God was fixed, was perfected, was made right. Not by Abram's behavior or goodness, but by faith alone. That was just last week. And today the wheels fall off. Of course, as I've said in previous weeks, we are Abram. We struggle to believe the promises of God when, when everything's going our way, let alone when it seems like God has forgotten, when it seems like God's promises are impossible. I think this tendency to, to try to accomplish God's will in our own way uh, often shows up in one of two ways. Uh, one way is this. Sometimes it, it shows up in a passive way, in which we just sort of subconsciously, not even thinking about it, it's not intentional, we just, we just try to take a little bit of control, we refuse to yield to God because, because we think we can help God out. It sounds ridiculous when we say it, right? Like, hey God, let me give you a hand with this. Uh, but how often have we been there? How often have we had that very in, uh, same internal conversation? When we thought, we, you know, we, we know how to do this. We know the right way. Lord willing, we come to our senses and realize that God is far better at working things out than we are. Other times when we see this happening, it's a very active, not a passive mistrust of God, but it's very active. And it usually comes down to a lack of acceptance of God's sovereignty. A lack of acceptance that God is the sovereign king of creation, that God created all that exists and knows how it works best. Here's what I mean. We, we want to do something in a particular way, and our sinful nature and our thick skulls make us think that we are actually God. Most of us would never come right out and say that, but we sure think it at times, and we act like it at times. We might say with our mouths that God is in control, but everything about the way that we live our lives sure makes it seem like we are the ones in control. Let me give you one, one example from the social realm. Uh, I've heard many Christians uh, bemoan all of the things that ail our society. But what's fascinating is that so often when you ask a question or when you drill down or, or press beneath, beneath the surface, what people are actually talking about is politics, right? Because that's what we flood our minds and our lives with. Uh, so we, we bemoan what's wrong with society, but what we actually mean is that that political party is the thing that ails society. And the cure for that ailment, it's obvious, right? The other political party. That's how we're trained to think in America. But of course, uh, no Christian who reads their Bibles would say that a political party is what ails us, that a political party is the source of our problems, and certainly not that a different political party is the cure for our problem. That's it's terrible theology, but we've all heard it, right? We've all heard it expressed. This is, this is the big problem with it. We can put our finger on the big problem with our country, with our world, with our society. We, we've heard it, and we've heard it in this building, likely, in conversations. 
It's trying to, to take matters into our own hands and applying a human solution to a spiritual problem. Because, of course, what ails society is not politics, right? We know that as Christians. We have the gospel. The only answer for sin, in either consciously or subconsciously, we so often trust in human solutions like political movements to try to solve problems that only the gospel can solve. You see, many who identify as Christian don't believe that the gospel is powerful and can save and can set free and can give life. I want you to sit in those words for a minute. Many who identify as Christian do not believe that the gospel is powerful, can save, can set free, and can give life. We look to other things to do those things. So we trust in things that we've created. We would rather vote and pat ourselves on the back and scream across the red-blue divide than love our neighbor for the sake of the gospel. Just one example, it's a poignant one, of how we mistrust God or, or how we don't believe what God has said and try to accomplish what we think is his will in our own way. This is what we see in our text for today. Sarai hatches a plan to give her maidservant or slave to, to, to Abram to be his wife. We have a bit of a collision of cultures at play in our text here. This practice, what, what Sarai did, she didn't, she didn't come up with on her own. This was, it, it seems bizarre to us, but it was commonplace in the ancient world. In an era before fertility treatments and medications, it was common for a, a couple in the predicament in which Abram and Sarai found themselves unable to have children. It was common to, to bring in another woman, to provide offspring, to continue the family name. And so Abram and Sarai simply adopted the traditions, the methods of the world. The convention of their culture, the practice of those around them in dealing with the problem that was before them. But of course, this wasn't God's plan. We so often mistrust God, try to accomplish his will in our own way. What else do we observe in our text? Second, we see that we experience the effect of sin upon our relationships. We experience the effect of sin upon our relationships. Verse 4, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Shocker, right? Uh, May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her what you think is best. And so Sarai mistreated her. We've all observed the effects of sin in our relationships. And so we shouldn't be surprised at what we see in our text for today. Hagar comes to realize that she is pregnant and she despises Sarah. I want to talk for a minute just about some of the words that we see in our text that might help us 
understand the relationship between Hagar and Sarai. Verse 1, it says that Hagar is Sarai's slave in our translation. Other translations might use the word maid or handmaid or servant. uh, Because we don't live in their time and in their place. It can be tempting to sort of superimpose our understanding of the word slave uh, upon uh, that word as we see it in our text. Uh, For example... In the New Testament, uh, there's a word that's often translated as servant or bond servant, uh, which is a a very different word than our modern understanding of slave, and also a different word than what we have here in Genesis 16. The particular Hebrew word that is used here is uh, is a word that is much stronger than uh, the word maid, or even the word servant. It carries connotations of involuntary servitude, uh, ownership even. There's a different Hebrew word that's more of the housekeeper or, or hired servant. Hagar was not that. She was the less free type of servant or slave. And so, so slave is a good uh, translation here. This helps us understand these relational dynamics between Sarai and Hagar. Hagar did not have a choice in this situation. Whether she desired to be united to Abraham and and carry his child or not, she did not have a say in the matter. She would have also been close enough to the family to to know of the promise of God that God had made to Abram. And, And so when she discovers that she's pregnant, she likely realizes, at least to some degree, the enormity of what's happening here, that she had an edge up on her master. And so she responds by despising Sarai. It's a word that literally means to to look down upon. I think we we need to be gracious here. She didn't choose this path. She didn't decide to do this. And being a human being, when she realizes that she's carrying the child of Abram, she begins to look down her nose at Sarai. Sarai. So in a completely unsurprising turn of events, this foolish plan results in drama between Hagar and Sarai. We could see that coming from a mile away. But notice what happens in verse 5. Sarai, who hatched this plan in the first place, then goes to Abram and says, this is all your fault. It's tough to be a man. The most husbandly response ever, Abram says, do whatever you think is right, honey. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. So Sarai, this is just humanity playing out. Uh, So Sarai uh, mistreats her servant, treats her harshly, and Hagar runs away. None of this is surprising. None of this is Shocking, but it's so important for us to recognize this, that sin is always relational cancer, that it kills relationships. Sarai and and Hagar hate each other, and Sarai blames her husband Abram. We we experience the effect of sin upon our relationships. We've all experienced it. The third observation I want to share with you this morning is this. Uh, Third, that God cares for the vulnerable. I don't know if you saw that in the text. That we see for the very first time in the scriptures, and this is important, 
the angel of the Lord, the text says, appears to Hagar. Verse 7 of our text says this, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And, and the angel asks, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And the angel says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now our translation follows uh, an ancient tradition of translating the word angel in this text. In verse 7, it's helpful to know here that this is actually a pretty generic word. Uh, where we see angel in verse 7, it's a generic word that just means messenger. So, for example, it's used to describe, uh, used to describe elsewhere in Scripture people who just deliver a message from another person, a spokesperson. For example, Genesis 32, uh, Jacob will send messengers to his brother Esau. Same word. He didn't send angels, he sent messengers. Uh, Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6, we find the same word. We know that Joshua sent spies into the land, but the Hebrew word is messenger, angel, as it's translated in our text. So what verse 7 really says, if we were to translate it maybe most literally, it would be the messenger of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh found Hagar in the desert by the spring. The one who is sent from Yahweh, from God himself. But in fact, this isn't just any messenger. There's strong evidence in the text to say that this is actually Yahweh himself. This is perhaps the pre-incarnate Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ, who appears to Hagar in the wilderness, speaks to her. God shows up in the desert and speaks to Hagar, this vulnerable slave girl who was mistreated, who was sent away by, by Sarai. Don't miss the significance of this detail in our text. Verse, thing, verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord. Think about this. Hagar gives God a name. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is an amazing verse. Hagar, the, the slave girl, driven away into the desert, likely sent away from her family unwillingly, sees God in the desert. And feels seen by God. Confesses that she senses that she's known by God. Cared for by God himself. God cares. God cares for his people despite our sin. Despite the mess that we find ourselves in. God cares particularly for the vulnerable. Fourth observation that I want to share with you this morning is this, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Of course, those are words from Romans chapter 5, verse 20. 
But we see them on display in our text. This very well could have been the point at which God gave up on Abram, right? God could have just said, I am done with these people and walked away, washed his hands. But instead, God responds as we see him do over and over and over again with grace. God blesses Hagar, protects her and Ishmael. And God continues on his mission with Abram and Sarai to to bless the whole world through them. The, The very fact that this isn't a period at the end of the beginning of Genesis, that God doesn't put a period here and stop the story is amazing. It's an act of God's grace. The, the reality that, that, that Abram and Sarai's decision to take matters into their own hand isn't just the end of the story, it is a testament of God's grace to sinners. And, and we see that even more clearly in verse 13. It says this, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Depending on your translation, there might be a little more clarity to what's actually going on under the surface of this. Hagar sees the God who sees her. And what's sort of buried in these words is the reality that Hagar is likely expressing here a sense of shock that she saw God and lived. and didn't die. That, that God in his mercy shows up, cares for Hagar, reveals himself to her. Hagar sees God, sees the, the, the grandeur, the, the splendor of his holiness, and doesn't die because of that. This is God's grace. God continues his plan to rescue the world, even through Abram and Sarai. And God appears and reveals himself and cares for Hagar. Where sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. It brings me to my fifth observation today. And that's this, that believers are simultaneously justified and sinful. Think back to the verse, remember last Sunday, I told you to underline a verse in your Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Listen to those words. It says this, Abram believed the Lord... And it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram was declared righteous by God last week. And this week he's taking his wife's servant girl, getting her pregnant. The righteousness of God was imputed, was declared to Abram last week. And this week we have a moral and spiritual train wreck, carnage, strewn about in every direction. Is there a story that more accurately depicts humanity? If Abram's salvation, if Abram's hope for forgiveness and eternal life was dependent upon his own actions and his own morality and his own goodness, he would have been damned a long time ago. But there's this biblical truth that we see playing out in the lives of Abram and Sarai. We saw it in Noah. We'll see it again in the future in in more of the patriarchs and in King David and in the New Testament, in Peter and in Paul, in, in every 
human being and every hero of the faith this biblical reality that we are at the very same time saints and sinners, simultaneously justified and yet sinful. Many people have this distorted view of the Christian faith in which they think that once we confess Christ as Lord, once we're washed and forgiven and made new and given eternal life in Christ, that our, our sinful nature is gone forever. That as long as you're a Christian, you're living righteously. They're never quite able to actually pull it off, uh, but it's a way that many people think. And then when you sin, when you doubt, when you wander, which we all do, that th- you must have backslidden. You must have abandoned your faith Temporarily, and, and so the answer is to rededicate your life to the Lord. But that understanding is forced to, to just avoid significant portions of the scriptures, like our passage for today, in which we see people walking with God one day and doing awful things the next. You know, looking back on my spiritual journey, I think it was while wrestling with this very idea, this tension, that our our Lutheran theological heritage sort of became my my spiritual, my theological home. Because Luther, in in the first of his 95 theses, said something powerful. Listen to what he wrote. In, In the first of those 95 theses, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Why is that understanding so profound? Why is it so pivotal and freeing and life-altering? Because what it means is there is never a time in your life, in your faith, in your walk with Christ, there is never a spiritual level that you will reach in which you can stop thinking of yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace. There's never a moment in which you outgrow your need for repentance. This is, of course, the heart of Paul in Romans chapter 7, when we see, get this glimpse straight through into the heart of Paul, his deepest struggles, doing what he doesn't want to do, not doing what he wants to do. I, I often, when I talk about sanctification, I say sanctification is not up and to the right. The Catechism says that sanctification is the daily work of God making us more like Christ. But the reality is that sanctification or spiritual growth, whatever we want to call it, is maybe more like the stock market. If you watch it every single day, and some of you do, you check, check the, the, the Dow Jones every day. If, if you do that, you feel like we're never getting anywhere. right? It's all doom and gloom. Then you step back and you look at maybe a five or a 10-year or a 20-year period. There's tremendous growth, right? It's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a window into, into what sanctification looks like for us. If, if we focus on today, all I'm going to see is my sin, right? If I look at yesterday, my sin, my sin is still fresh. But when, when I zoom out and I'm able to see God's work over time, that there is, there is progress, there is growth, but I'm, but I'm always at the very same time saint, justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, and yet sinner. 
And thankfully, sanctification is God's work. It's the work that God does within us, not, not our work. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 and following. Paul says this, he says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just, just like Paul, just like Abram, you are at the very same time saint and sinner, justified and sinful. Justified by faith alone. God has declared you righteous, declared you not guilty of your sin. It's a legal term declared in the courtroom of heaven. Because of Christ, you are justified. And yet we all see and feel another law waging war that leads us to doubt God. To take matters into our own hands that wrecks relationships. And so where do we go? You, you can't escape it on this side of eternity. You can't will your sin nature away. We've all tried that. The only place to go is repentance, daily repentance. As Luther said, seeing our life as a life of repentance, a daily continual turning from this body of death to the Lord of life, to the God who meets us by the spring and speaks words of life into our lost and wandering state. We have a God who sees us, and a God who allows us to see him. And he loves us and he cares for us, and we have, we have never been more seen and known and cared for than at the cross. And here's the crazy thing. We can despite this simultaneously justified and sinner, despite all of our struggles and our doubts and our tendency to take matters into our own hands, we can live with assurance, with true hope. In spite of our sinfulness, in spite of this body of death, because, because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, your eternal hope is not found in you but in another, in the one who appeared to Hagar, in the one who died and rose again for you. And so we are free to rest this morning, knowing that the weight isn't on our shoulders. Can you imagine Abram calling out in prayer to God, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think he did. And Paul answers that question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
the reminder that when sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. That you are merciful to sinners like us, even in our worst moments, that our sin and our doubt and our failure and our taking matters into our own hands and our mistrust of you has been paid for on the cross by your Son, fully, completely finished. We thank you that just like Abram, we are justified by faith alone and not by our works. We confess and we believe that if it were dependent upon our goodness, we would be eternally damned. God, help us to live in that good news, that Jesus did it all. Lead us to repentance, to to daily repentance and faith, daily turning from that sin nature and, and believing the gospel. God, we want to live by faith. We want to be obedient, to not take matters into our own hands, to, to not do everything our own way. So, so deepen our faith, deepen our trust in you. Sanctify us by your word and by your spirit. And leave us resting today in the knowledge that you are the God who sees that you one day will rescue us from this body of death. All of our hope is in you. And you are certainly worthy of our hope. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.